Prologue Half a mile into the icy dark, the diver scraped to a stop. He tried an experimental kick and wriggle, then dug his fingers into gritty rock and hauled. He didn't move. Held there, ribs and shoulders squeezed tight by the cave's walls, he realized he was caught. Instead of struggling, he relaxed. Stop, think, evaluate the situation. He clicked his light back on, and by its sudden brilliance, pondered the pale pitted stone, dotted with the fossils of ancient scallops and sea biscuits that glowed inches from his eyes. He tasted the sulfurous seep around his mouthpiece and purged a spoonful of murky water from his mask. Then he brought his wrist up, focusing his attention on instruments and gauges. The luminescent numbers said he could breathe for 52 more minutes at this depth. The twin steel tanks on his back were cross-connected with dual regulators in case one free floater jammed. He had another regulator and stage tank clipped to a D-ring on his harness. He'd already breathed it down, but that still left it two-thirds full. A fourth, smaller tank held pure oxygen for decompression on the way up after the traverse. Calmed by the knowledge he had plenty to breathe, he concentrated again on the constriction, but no matter how much air he dumped from his buoyancy compensator or how tightly he ground his groin into the smooth stone, he couldn't free his tanks from the ceiling niche into which they'd snapped like a rifle bolt. He was caught, wedged tight as a mouse in a blacksnake's jaws, trapped under the solid rock, alone, deep in the black labyrinth. He began hyperventilating, sucking in gusts of dry, metallic-tasting air. His heart raced. The beast in his belly was waking. It wanted to tear off the mask and hood, yank the mouthpiece out, and claw its way up to the light. But there was no light above him, and no air. Just 30 to 60 million years worth of Oligocene limestone, and, above that, the muddy, leaf-strewn bed of a river. If he panicked, he was dead. It was that simple. But you don't panic, he told himself. He'd mapped systems in the Yucatan ten times longer than this one. In 15 years of cave work, he'd blown regulators, lost guidelines, burned out lights, snapped off valves, lost primary gas, had gauges implode and computers fail, even driven his Tecna into a rock wall at full speed once, and survived every time. Staring into the dark, he pulled out a memory he kept for times like this, a fall afternoon, many years before. The smell of burning leaves, his granddad's voice, telling him how much he looked like his dad when his dad was little. The old house. He went inside, and there was the mudroom, then the living room, the moose head, the big record player, and on it, his father's tarnishing tennis trophies. Gradually, his heart dropped back into a normal rhythm. His hand stopped twitching. He groped at his chest, found the squeeze tube, and took three quick gulps of Gatorade and honey. He thrust his mouthpiece back in, the rubber mud gritty and foul after the sweet liquid, cleared the regulator, and reconsidered his position. He'd obviously gotten through here before. There was his guideline leading off into the dark. He must have eaten better than he thought over the winter. Amazing what an extra couple of pounds around the middle could do. Well, there was always slack somewhere, as Houdini used to say. He took his primary regulator out again and shifted to the secondary on the seven-foot hose. Then, wriggling backward as it came forward, he began working his tank harness up over his shoulders, 
His joints cracked as if they were dislocating, but at last he was rewarded by a hollow clank. The manifold unlocked from the ceiling with a shower of mud and stone fragments. He grabbed for the guideline before it vanished in the murk. He shoved the harness and gear through ahead of him, the tank scraping and clanging like muffled bells. Then grabbed an outcrop and pulled himself after them, belly pressing loving tight into the rock. He wriggled twenty feet, the jagged fossils ripping at his hands in suit, before the constriction opened out. Beyond it, his light probed blackness, tracing an oval passage walled with dark stone. He breathed easier, and the beast closed its eyes. He checked his valves and slipped the tanks back on, then rested for a minute. He adjusted his buoyancy, centering himself in the six-foot-wide passage, and listened to the silence, the incredible peace. No matter how quiet it was at the surface, if you listened, you always heard something. The rumble of traffic, the distant thunder of an airliner, the hum and buzz of refrigerators and air conditioners. But here no sound existed but the click and hiss as he inhaled, then the muffled roar of bubbles. And as he hovered motionless, the black silence swelled, grew enormous around his feeble heartbeat, the transient spark of his light. As if this hollow in the earth lived and breathed in its own way, throbbing with the slow pulse of water. Then he moved on, fanning forward again, reaching out occasionally with the tips of his fingers to guide himself around a turn. He bored on steadily for the next few hundred yards, as the passage branched into finger-like extensions angling off into darkness. He didn't remember this section, but there was his line, taut, reassuring. With his own white plastic line arrows clipped to it, the water gradually turned murky brown, laden with solids. His light showed a rough, bubbly reddish-brown gothite, through which he tunneled like a worm in a Swiss cheese. He checked his depth, passing a hundred feet. A wide, low-ceilinged room, floor littered with rock. Then another fork. He followed the line into the right-hand passage. He swam slowly, deliberately, head down and feet up, stubbly fins pumping in a cautious shuffle kick so as not to stir up the silt. Still going down. Fifty yards on, he stopped again, overcome by a sudden sense of danger. He drifted to a halt in the middle of a tunnel just wide enough for his outstretched hands to brush opposite walls. He floated midway between left wall and right, floor and ceiling. His wrist-mounted light played over a pile of breakdown. The tumbled rubble loomed up, partially blocking the way. The spot of yellow light flicked back and found the guideline. The white braided nylon led on ahead, over the rocky pile. The spot flicked upward, probing into a vertical slot or crack in the ceiling. He pressed his light against his chest, cutting off the beam. Blackness flooded in all around him, the absolute and eternal black of the caves. He was lost. But he couldn't be lost. There was his line. When he uncovered his main light again, it was dimmer. He shook it angrily, and it went out altogether. He clipped it to his harness, groping for a backup as the darkness closed around him like a suffocating fist. Light burst out again, reassuring, but not as bright as the bigger unit. He squinted behind the mask. There was his guideline, still leading on. But he hadn't recognized anything for the last fifteen minutes. Was he losing his memory? Getting narked? But he wasn't that deep. He felt focused, intent with the controlled paranoia of the trained diver. Had he screwed up somehow? gotten turned around. He couldn't think how. When he checked his computer again, the decision had been made for him. He'd used more air than he thought, 
back there in the bottleneck. It couldn't go back. He had to go forward, trusting air and light lay ahead. Bubbles roared in his ears. The beast shuddered, stirred, and again he breathed deep and slow. He was sure now he'd never seen this part of the cave before. Maybe this wasn't his line. It looked like his, but maybe other divers had been in here. Somehow he'd fouled up in the murky water, taken the wrong turn. There were lots of side branches. And gotten off his line and onto theirs. Wherever it went, now he was committed to it. More and more with each second that passed as he hung here, trying to make the right decision. All in all, not a good situation. But he'd been in tight spots before. Even if this wasn't his line, it must lead to an exit. Wherever the other divers had come in. Some obscure sinkhole back in the hammocks. The river, maybe. Or a chimney up, a shaft or a lift tube or siphon. He glanced at his gauges again, hoping he found it soon. The passage had led gradually downward, and the deeper he went, the more air he used. He had 14 minutes left in his main tanks. When they went dry, he'd shift to the stage bottle. After that, the oxygen. Breathing it would be swiftly fatal this deep, but he was running out of alternatives. Don't fixate on that. Just keep going. Stay calm. Above all, he had to stay calm. But he couldn't help thinking of the bodies. He'd pulled out his share over the years. Open water divers who came to Florida and decided caves couldn't be that tough. So beautiful, so innocent looking, bubbling with millions of gallons of spring water, clear and clean as liquid light. They'd just take a look and the dark welcomed them, tempted them on, then struck silent and sudden. They turned back to find the way out blotted black by kicked-up silt. They lost their bearings, or their lights, or sometimes just their nerve. You found them wedged into the overhead, masks off, some with air still in their tanks. They'd panic, sometimes just a few feet from escape. But it wouldn't happen to him. He wasn't going to die. In the next hundred yards or the hundred after that, he'd find a way out. Breathing as slowly as he could, holding his spare light out at arm's length, he followed its golden fading beam down and down and down into the black, still reverberating heart of the earth. <laughs>